0: This is Resistance US Radio. Resist and progress. My name is Stu. I'm here with my co-conspirators Linda and Jax. On today's program, we have Katie McCammett, who is a pioneer of co-housing in America. Uh, but before we get to our interview with her, which was really fantastic, by the way, I, Jax and I really enjoyed. Interviewing Katie. Before we get to that, um, we're going to talk about, as Jax calls it, "Little D Democracy." Today, Jax, what do you have in mind on that on that subject?
1: Well, like I mentioned earlier, I've been inspired by, sadly, a TV show, but a quality TV show, in my opinion, based on a very much a quality book, The Handmaid's Tale, and. Um, Atwood's journey in that book of of modern society descending into a, an authoritarian society, a modern society that was democratic, descending into an authoritarian state. And um, having watched that with my husband, it's bringing up a lot of questions um, regarding democracy with a small d and how how easy it is for um, with the wrong leaders in place how easy it is to get from one point to the next
0: it seems like we're this is all kind of happening all of a sudden but of course we need to remember that this is like a concerted effort all this erosion of democracy there's a concerted effort since well I mean really forever but it's kind of, its current form is what since the the 90s or since Reagan deregulation of wall street and then big money in politics and you know, the Koch brothers and all that. Um, so this is, it's kind of like the ugly result of a long,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: a long few decades of effort.
1: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that like you mentioned, we've always had that capacity. That's always been an element here. Um, But what I guess what the difference is more recently was we really thought that I know that I really thought the process of eliminating extremism, I really didn't think that 45 would ever become the Republican candidate and then that he would win. I but I think it was a failure of. The nomination process and sort of how the media handled uh, the circus that was his campaign that that allowed that authoritarian streak that's already always been there, as you mentioned, to really. I mean, because I'm even thinking further back, McCarthy. Mm-hmm. You know, this this has always been there, but how has it most recently become more dominant and? How did this, our democratic processes fail?
2: Well, and how powerful the media is today and how much sway it has over people. And I think today we have um, also social media playing a role in this too.
1: Yeah, expand on that. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, Well, I think that um, especially with with this administration, we have um, an example of somebody in a leadership role who clearly doesn't respect, um, well, doesn't respect democracy, since that's the the main topic here, but doesn't, you know, doesn't respect women um, and, you know, a whole realm of of other things and is very vocal about that and is an example, is a bully. And we've seen, um, I think we've seen comments, you know, going out via Twitter and, you know, in every other mode of communications now, too, via social media, via television and everything else. And I think people, it's, it spreads like wildfire and it, and you can see immediately with social media, the impact that it has on people with people being able to comment in real time and jump on the bandwagon and feeling a sense of, um, you know, being emboldened, um, by being able to put their their viewpoints out so in such an immediate fashion and be bolstered by other people's support, and um, I think that it it just grows like wildfire and emboldens people in their in their viewpoints. And we've seen cases where people have even made you know, public slurs about um, you know immigrants and and such and saying, well, look, you know, 45 does it. So I think this is a very dangerous kind of a thing.
1: And I would add to that, you're, you're so right, because just this recent um, situation with him speaking about law enforcement bashing people's heads into cars on their, Mm -hmm. you know, when they're putting them in custody, that was that, how awful is that? And the response should have been crickets. Instead, the, he, his, this response to that was hand clapping and cheers yeah. that's very very disturbing. So Very disturbing. And how I,
0: many police I'm, officers are going to think about right. uh, their own right. president and endorsing police brutality the next time they
1: mm-hmm. you know considering right.
0: hitting someone's head into a car.
1: Right. Or I love that.
0: Obviously actually- or obviously much worse.
1: I love that that I've seen Gainesville Police Department coming out, you know, this is not our policy now. Do not act on this policy. Our policy remains treating people with respect. And I believe, you know, that will be the case in a lot of places that respectful, conscientious, responsible law enforcement Mm -hmm. will make sure that their officers know this isn't okay. But then what about all of those departments that don't address this issue
2: on individuals even sure Um, yeah so what
1: you brought up also makes me remember because i'm thinking of it more along the timeline of you know the within like i said within a week of his presidency we already had the muslim travel ban up till and then you go along the timeline and then most recently the um the ban on transgender service members, but you're right. It it so started before his presidency. It started during his campaign. I remember how awful I felt when he when those um when that interview about his views towards women surfaced, and all of this is just having that effect of you know disenfranchising groups here and there and here and there until who is ultimately you know, making the decisions. And I really do think it's wearing down on our democracy in a very real way. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, thankfully, he, thankfully, Donald Trump is um, essentially incompetent. I think we can probably all agree (laughs) on that. Um, And, you know, his, his White House... And everything around him is just chaos, which I don't know, maybe he thrives on. Um, But a result of that chaos and incompetence is that a lot of these uh, authoritarian policies don't get enacted um, as well as he might like them to, or his base might like them to um but at the same time with all this chaos you know like he just fired his chief of staff and i don't know it seems like he fires some (laughs) high level person like once a week or something like that with all of this it kind of um i think distracts us from Mm -hmm. the very real effect that uh either these you know his policies are having or just um the lack of progress is having you know there's We still don't hear, really, you know, in the mainstream news of... We we don't hear from undocumented immigrants, for example, who are, I'm sure, a lot of them are probably suffering um, in some form or another. Whether it's, uh, you know, hiding in fear, uh, not getting medical care because they don't want to be deported, um, or whether it's, uh, you know, transgender people who may be facing more acts of violence by people who feel emboldened but so mm-hmm. it's kind of like all this three ring circus is distracting us from actually looking at at the effects of policies
2: and i think that that really will have an effect on people when say i think that's how we get to a point where we say gosh how did we get here with mm-hmm. things that are um, you know, things, huge topics like the environment or like you mentioned, immigration. And we think, how did we get here? Well, while we were all paying attention to his antics and trying to, you know, be the ringleader of, of everything and be in the, in the spotlight with his shock value kind of um, rhetoric, we'll think, well, that's how we got here while we were all distracted by it. So I think you're absolutely right that there that it. I don't know if it's purposeful purposeful um on his part that that this is all meant to be a distraction or if that's just sort of what's happening
0: i'm i'm kind of past the point of thinking that he's doing anything on purpose <laughs>
1: <laughs> well he's he's purposely attacking the media which is another one sure. of these uh-huh. erosions of democracy um okay. he so mm, yeah I, you can't help but wonder if so he's had many businesses is this you know it would be interesting to interview former employees i think a few of those have been out there really um interviews with college people that he went to college with or had worked with him and yeah they're all saying the same thing that he was a nut and maybe people just aren't interviewing the ones that are like yeah he was a swell guy great (laughs) boss but um it does kind of make you wonder if he has used these tactics in the past and they've been fruitful for him even though he has so many failed businesses it's hard to think that would be the case but i don't know i don't know about him being purposeful about it i just know that it's having a really detrimental effect on you know like everything you you two both said about how we're treating each other um with less and less respect and and that is how we get to an authori- authoritarian state because you go from you know things that we talked about in the interview not to give anything away building relationships to um, destroying relationships and then people can do really awful things to each other when those relationships have been destroyed because people are being pit against each other.
2: And so how do we get get back to a place where we feel like we're on the right track? I mean, I guess that's the big question that I think we are sort of um, working on. Yeah. Tackling in this, in this podcast too. Um, Like for the two of you, what makes you feel better in your daily lives about like actions we can do or um, directions we can move in? Like what, um, what do you think is, is sort of um, upholding, you know, our, our values
1: For me, it's it's trying not to buy into the fear mongering and -hmm. reminding other people when I hear them buying into the fear mongering. You know, it's pretty easy these days to Google how many citizens have been actually killed by a terrorist. I mean, you know, those are awful things that happen, but they are so few and far between. And to, to going back to the Muslim travel ban, to try to to ban, you know, people from all these countries from coming into the United States because a small number of people have been hurt. I mean, obviously we could quote, well, more people have been hurt by, you know, car accidents, gun violence by uh, just their next door neighbor drowning in a swimming pool. So why? And then of course, and I do understand that people are taking these things up in court, but that's Another worry of mine is that I don't, you know, that Muslim travel ban, it's still, it's partially in effect. And so that's where I think we get this incremental dissent when, no, that that shouldn't be partially in effect. That's ridiculous. It's, it's, mm-hmm. And we still, so I guess in my daily life, I fight it on a personal level or just yeah. try to remind myself not to fear monger. And then try and support organizations that are trying to support the lo- larger cause and taking these to court and hoping that process will work.
2: Yeah. No, I think those are some good ideas. Um, definitely. Still? I feel the same way, like looking for some organizations that are doing good work out there and um, and trying to support them as much as possible. makes I know makes me feel a little bit better. And what else?
0: Well, for me, I think of a couple things. Um, one of them is just uh, supporting honesty in general. Um, I think that's what appealed to a lot of people about uh, Bernie, for instance, is that um, if he felt a certain way about a policy, you know, he would just tell you, and he's going to tell you the actual facts about about issues, whether it's uh, inequality or or climate change um i think people are really sick of um just politicking in general um mm-hmm. and it it's on it's a problem with both major parties um if you look at the attempted repeal of the affordable care act um you know, when Obama was in office, of course, the Republicans uh, brought it up for a vote in the House like, I don't know, 40 times or something like that. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, I think it passed a lot of those times. And the reason it passed is because they knew that Obama was just going to veto it. And so now that there's a Republican in the White House, s- some of those people have flipped because... <laughs> the uh the calculus is that um well I don't actually want this to pass. I'll get skewered at home for it. Um so now I can't vote for it. So it's just a huge amount of dishonesty on the Republican side and then you look on the the Democrat uh, the Democratic side in California. Um you know, we had been talking about SB 562 single payer healthcare in California for a while now. Um it's been an issue for 20 years, and this same kind of um, these same kind of games have been played this whole time, where uh, Democrats will pass it, knowing that it it'll face a Republican
1: a, governor yeah. or
0: a Jerry Brown governor.
1: <laughs> oh, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. that's knowing that too.
0: knowing that he'll veto it, and so they can look good, but at the same time, uh, you know, wash their hands of actually having it pass on their watch um so it's just an incredible amount of dishonesty and in in, i guess in my personal activist life i try to stand up to that kind of um dishonesty when i can there's a local um left-leaning organization i've been working with and i had to call them out for uh posting some well, I hate using this term, but fake news on their timeline. I'm like, yeah, right. you got to take that down. I don't right. care if it's like, you know, supporting our argument or not, but right. we can't just put up BS. On.
2: That's <laughs> yeah. excellent. Yeah, that's a that's, that's a great point. I mean, even in our own um, circles on Facebook, I think that, um, you know, not just organizations, but friends and neighbors and family members we kind of have to bring it back to reality sometimes a little bit, or I mean, they might argue that it's not reality, but
0: (laughs) yeah. Well, and it's not just, um, taking down falsehoods, but also making sure that we're focusing on the most important things. Like, uh, if we want to talk about war, let's not talk about, uh, the cost of it as the main problem. Let's talk about, you know, the, uh, thousands of civilians whose lives are being lost every day and we don't maybe not thousands every day hopefully but um, and that that we don't talk about those people and it's you know just bringing up those kinds of facts of you know why is this not primary just because we don't uh, see these innocent people losing their lives on TV every night that should be the main reason to oppose war you know
2: absolutely
1: it all ties in because you just mentioned media again and the healthcare issue keeps mm-hmm. poor people worried about you know health concerns and are, am I going to pay rent am I going to buy groceries instead of you know folks can't feel like they have the luxury of addressing larger issues when and and not to say Folks don't because they do, but it just makes it that much harder and that much easier to not be able to address these these larger issues of what's going on
2: right. in our government. Yeah. Sure. When you have um, the issues of day-to-day living and putting food on the table and being able to pay for the roof over your head, you know those are the things that you're going to be spending your time worrying about, which... It's sad that more and more people are having to um, you know, think about those things. Hierarchy of needs. Yep, hierarchy of needs. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
1: I'd just like to add real quick that um, I you hear people talking a lot, well, the United States isn't a... Rep- isn't a de- democracy it's a republic as if they're mutually exclusive and that's another one of those uh when folks bring that up you know it, it's easy to counter with you know again it's not mutually exclusive we can be both <laughs> so um that's yeah. another because people will use that as if we shouldn't try to aspire to democracy because our you know founding
2: we're actually a republic because we're
1: actually a republic and it's just a ridiculous statement to make because you know we we operate on both levels so sorry that was just something that occurred to me when I was thinking about democracy with a small d that that's an actual argument the people will use (laughs) right yeah Now I've heard that too really
0: well one thing we need to remember um that isn't front and center in the media right now is trump's efforts to uh suppress voting rights across the whole country i'm Mm -hmm. not too up to speed on what that is looking like i know there's been some resistance from the states um but you know that's that's pretty scary to me because that's one way that you know if if there was a presidential election today and it was trump versus um a cactus plant i think the cactus plant would win (laughs)
3: but if he can
0: suppress the vote enough you know then that might be uh down that that might be on the way to a permanent you know erosion of democracy Mm
1: -hmm. and he laid the groundwork for that before he was even elected he 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 implied that he would question the results of the election if he didn't win and then of course he won and he's still questioning the results of the election so he has laid the groundwork to a This and that is why it's so very frightening. Because people are buying into it. Now, like you said, there are states resisting, including ours. But then there's other states that aren't. (laughs) So I I just I worry, I really do. But we we do like you were saying. Would Linda, did you
2: fully answer your own question about what you do to try and resist? oh I, I, I think that um, YouTube covered um, most most of it. I mean, I, I think definitely supporting organizations that do good work and um, supporting you know honesty around us, as Stu mentioned, is I think those are those are huge. And just and then, you know, just trying to keep up with sort of my daily actions and still calling representatives and congress people. and um, so I, I think. You know, it's a combination of efforts. So, um, right. Yeah, but I think you guys you guys pretty much touched on the big ones.
0: Well, one other thing I would mention is uh, kind of routing around government when when you can or when needed. Um, I think we see efforts on climate change, for instance, uh, that aren't involving government i mean it's always better when government is involved on our side um to fix the problem of climate change but you know like the prices of solar panels are dropping below the prices of uh fossil fuels um i guess the other examples i would think of would be around free speech because i'm in the tech world and um you know new, new forms of uh communication on the internet whether it's using a blockchain or um uh or anonymous web browsing and things like that <laughs> um so there's stuff def- you know, on some issues we can't really route around government probably immigration would be one of them um but on other issues you know we sometimes need to look to ourselves uh as the first solution rather than asking our representatives to do something that <laughs> they're totally not wanting or willing to do.
1: Yeah. I understand somewhat the issue about net neutrality, but I hadn't really thought about these other topics yeah. you're bringing up. Anonymous. Yeah. Can you explain that a little bit, Stu?
0: Um, sure. So, well, net neutrality as a whole – worrying issue but um, uh, I mean as, as I think most or hopefully all of our listeners know basically all of our um, internet and phone and etc. communications are monitored on some level um, and whether that's uh, just storing um, the to, from, and date of emails or phone calls, which is a huge amount of revealing data or whether it's going deeper than that and actually looking at the content of what you post online. Um, I think we all understand that, you know, we're being monitored. Um, Mm -hmm. so there, there are some ways around that. Um, they're not foolproof. It, it just, a lot of these things that you can do would make it much more difficult, but not impossible to monitor you and one really great tool that um that I use is called Tor and basically it takes your internet traffic and it bounces it around the internet a few times and then pops it out somewhere else before it goes to your destination Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Mm. so
0: in that way it uh and it was this tool was actually developed initially by the U.S. Navy but it's used by activists around the world Um,
2: interesting I had no idea
0: yeah, yeah, it's free to use, um, you know, just Google Tor, T-O-R, mm-hmm. um, yeah. on any major OS. You can even use it on your phone if you want. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: so that's one thing you can do, and then, um, that's so that's to kind of anonymize your traffic, and then if, uh, if you want to encrypt your communications, there's a really great phone app for both Android and Android. Apple called uh, Signal, and um, it's got... Really strong encryption, and the government can't go knocking on Signal's door and ask them for your communications because you hold the cryptographic keys. So both wow. these tools I mentioned are actually pretty easy to use. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot more you could could do that requires a lot of technical expertise, but um, yeah, those, those are,
1: are the
0: just, basics. Though, yeah, and they're actually really useful for people like in China. Yeah. Um, I mean, they sometimes have to, it's kind of a cat and mouse game over there cause it's blocked and then you find a way around it
2: and et cetera.
0: Yeah. But, um, yeah, people around the world use these tools to communicate securely. And I mean, yeah. in other countries, you, it might be a little bit more transparent about, uh, you know, getting locked up for bad mouthing the King or whatever. Um, yeah. In our country, it's a, a bit more subtle. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: (laughs) but the monitoring is probably above and beyond probably any other country i would guess yeah
1: because we have that capability
0: yeah but net neutrality of course is a whole different scary topic because you know even if you want to use these tools that uh they could potentially be slowed down or blocked Mm -hmm. as opposed to having an an open internet
2: right Um, that's there's, there's
0: probably some Ways that we could fight against that from a tech perspective, but it's a lot more difficult.
2: It sounds like we could also have a um, this could this topic could be expanded upon you know in a future co- podcast too, maybe we. Oh, about- yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Tech Technical yeah. technological yeah, tech stuff, resistance. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Well, like you said, it's going to
2: take every angle. Yep. Because. And all the tools at our disposal. Right.
1: Well, and we're in such new ground. I mean, even
2: looking to,
1: we can look to other states who have um, had authoritarian leaders um, come to power and say, well, here, you know, here, here's what happened there. Let's try and avoid that. But Mm -hmm. also, you know, are there examples of people, of states that have Resisted that, mm-hmm. and even if there, if those examples exist where they're like, no, we're you know, we're not going to allow this. But that was in a different time without all of this technology that we're talking right. about now. So yeah. it
2: it definitely poses a lot of interesting questions. I don't know that we have many examples of um, nations where that sort of um, you know existence is is happening, and there's the level of technology that right we have going on I mean I would say China I guess comes to mind yeah
1: but, With, um, that's what made me think of it once yeah you it, China right
0: yeah well one thing we have to keep in mind when we're looking at examples of other countries that have successfully resisted or um, made progress you know against
2: uh, a regime
0: uh, yeah an authoritarian regime is a lot of times the tactics that are used in those countries are messy Mm -hmm. so we're gonna have to i think um really do some uh reflection as a movement uh right you know to talk about what kind of tactics we are willing to use and again going back to the honesty conversation um actually having honest conversations about it rather than uh just having some quote by gandhi and having that shut down the conversation
2: right yeah Um, i agree yeah, you got to really talk about these um, messy issues.
1: I had a friend on Facebook recently um, she's gay
2: and she's very
1: troubled about 45's comments about gays and and she she you know was not quite despondent but definitely worried and you know you have to ask yourself those questions and I thought about it and and I meant it when I told her, you know, the, they'll have to go through my dead body to get to you. And I think that was meaningful to her, just that she knew, like, mm. wait a minute, people really are going to stick out their necks. Yeah. If there's a time and a place to do that, that, like Stu said, it's not going to be, you know, we're not going to be throwing flowers. You know, we're really, there might be times when people's safety um needs to be defended and and we need to be there to do that oh absolutely
0: well on that cheery
2: note (laughs) (laughs) i know just cut that part out (laughs) can we end on a a happy story
0: (laughs) sure i'd love a happy story linda
2: (laughs) um Oh, I thought you had one. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm like, hmm, it's a little too early in the morning for, for, <laughs> well, for
1: optimism, I was isn't it? About, um, my professor, Sam, I, have I mentioned to you my professor Samuel Olliner, Um, from back in the day? he His entire family uh, was killed in Poland. He was Polish. He uh, moved here after World War II, and... He is such an he was such an inspiration. He was elderly when I had him as a professor, so I'm not actually sure that he's still uh, that he hasn't died. But when he was my professor, he was such an inspiration because, despite his entire family being killed in Poland because they were Jewish, um, he came here and was a voice of resistance because what he liked to point out is that, you know, this many Jewish people were saved during World War II, and the only reason that happened was because people stuck out their necks and they protected these people. And, and, and it was, in Germany, maybe one half of 1% of people. And then he says, try to imagine if it would have been 1% of the people saving people. Try and imagine if it would have been Five percent. So he really gave a perspective of, you know, the more that we can continue building relationships the more power we have to to protect against what we're talking about today, this potential yeah. erosion of democracy. So it it was inspirational that this person who had lost his whole family um, could say that there's still there's still a potential to resist that and not to let it happen again. And if we find ourselves in a similar similar situation to to just get the numbers behind us and not and not to really let things happen that way ever again. That wasn't really inspirational though, was it?
2: Was more, well it is actually <laughs> well it is actually and it ties into our I think our topic for today too with um, you know creating bridges between people and um know closer ties with our neighbors and i think when when those things are at play there's more of a likelihood that people will stand up for each other you know and and against um a cruel regime or or you know other cruel you know um neighbors and things happening around us so so i think that we have to trust that um, people will do the right thing and continue to uphold doing the right thing and um, you know, and then, and I think hear what some of what Katie has to say on the topic, you know, in our interview today, I think that, I think that that will be a little bit uplifting.
1: It will be. She's <laughs> inspiring.
0: It's kind of weird, uh, having the first part of the show be recorded <laughs> after the last part of the show. Because yeah. It's like, no, believe me, the interview is going to be amazing.
2: It's going to be amazing. We just know it. Maybe it should always be done like this. <laughs> yeah, no,
0: it's good, actually. A lot of podcasts are recorded in this way.
2: <laughs> yeah. That's good.
0: Katie McCammith is a pioneer of co housing in America. She has been the architect and development consultant for dozens of co housing communities around the world. She's also my neighbor and very interested and concerned about politics. In other words, she's a perfect first guest for Resistance U.S. Radio. Welcome, Katie.
3: Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And so
0: just to get us started, um, could you describe for our, our audience members who might not be familiar with cohousing just a short description of what cohousing is and how it's different from typical western living arrangements
3: yes um co-housing communities or co-housing neighborhoods are um a a specific type of community within a broad range of different types of communities and so the the specific definition of co-housing is where people have their own individual homes so you still have your own kitchen but uh share extensive common facilities with the intent of really creating a neighborhood where you really know your neighbors And there are a number of ways that really uh, make that happen. So one of them is the physical design and layout. Things like getting the cars out of the middle of the neighborhood so that people are actually out playing and working in the gardens. And so designing to enhance a sense of community and find a balance between privacy and community, as opposed to most new neighborhoods that are really focused on privacy. Um, and then following the physical design is the social design, so that people really are moving into a, a co-housing neighborhood with the intent of knowing and collaborating with their neighbors um, in the way that was really not so uncommon a hundred years ago in small towns across America. So so the things we have, sort of the physical aspects is a, Individual private homes with a common house or common facilities which you come together, do collaborative meals, and uh, manage the overall neighborhood, and work together in a variety of ways.
1: And how did you first get involved with the co-housing movement?
3: Well, we, uh, my um, husband and I were um, both, we actually met studying in Denmark in a Danish international studies architecture program and uh, in 1980-81 and if you study architecture in Denmark you study the history of housing in Denmark and it was just coming the 12th community was just being completed when we were there that year so it was one of the things we studied and it just made so much sense and then I was quite shocked um, to come back to UC Berkeley's architecture department and realize that nobody knew anything about this so being young and naive we said we'll go research this. <laughs> and off we went. And um, and so that was the basis of our first book uh, that really introduced co-housing to the English-speaking world. Um, it came out in 1988. So, and uh, our claim to fame is we invented the word co-housing wow. and actually are credited to that in the Oxford English Dictionary. Nice. So, so I think one of the things also, because these days, um, it often gets confused with shared housing. And I think that uh, shared housing is also a very viable model. It's a different. It's more intensive. And so just uh, trying to be clear that that really is a different type of, of living arrangement. And you could have a shared house within a co-housing community. right? So if I you know, had different people living in the bedrooms, we could be a shared house. And it works really well within a co-housing neighborhood. But co-housing as a specific type of uh, community is is where you still have your own individual home, and that could be a small studio or it could be a four-bedroom house, so that we um, I think have a greater balance of privacy with community, which, in my mind, makes it uh, more accessible for longer periods of time for most Americans. Right. Starting to broaden, one of the interesting things about mm-hmm communities in the United States is we actually have one of the longest and most diverse histories of alternative communities. Um, You know, people coming from Europe forever from the very beginning settlers with establishing alternative communities. But we've had very little luck with that sort of moving into the mainstream, sort of like those weird people out there. And and I've always really seen co-housing neighborhoods as something... Um, that much more of the American middle class could access and could understand. And, um, and so that's why I'm particularly interested in it. It's not so much that it's pushing the limits of anything, but I see it as a really important as a model that in my mind actually gives you a better life and at the same time uh, makes it much easier to use less of those resources. And so it's really easy to live in a community, co-housing neighborhood and not drive as often and not use as many resources um, and still feel like you're really living the
1: good life. And I was even thinking pr- common purchases, buying in bulk, those sorts of things would be easier to facilitate as well.
3: Yeah, there's sort of the the number of things you can do with your neighbors in a community like this is endless. Mm-hmm. And so it's just somebody sending out an email and taking the lead to organize, you know, whether you want to, we do bulk purchases of organic olive oil from a local farmer. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, there's about a million. Right. So it's just any, because it does become so it's easy to organize things.
1: And really reducing waste that way.
3: Yes, no, exactly. And uh, yeah, so, and I think for me, that's actually an important driver Um, I've been involved in affordable housing. I think that's really important, but I kind of decided that in my world, what I thought I could bring sort of my special piece of trying to move the world forward was the entire world looks to the United States and the, uh, the American middle class as a model of, you know, when you succeed, this is what it looks like and if the rest of the world wants to live the way most of the american middle class does it definitely kills the planet you know the the amount of driving we do these large houses that we air condition and heat and keep huge amounts of stuff in isn't really we really need alternative models for living the good life but using a lot less of the resources so so i kind of carved out this is what i really felt like i could contribute to the world was to get these neighborhoods built so people could see that you know, an experience that is a really great way to live. And we, and this, our neighborhood here in Nevada City, we use easily half of the resources, water, electricity, gas, car driving, than a typical California family would.
1: You're minutes, I mean, minutes walking downtown from here. So it reminds me of Portland where they're trying to build up, not out. So, I mean, you are out a little bit, but really try to stay very close to the center of town and, and different resources that are available.
3: Yeah, yeah. So for me personally, living in a walkable neighborhood is a really strong pull. But I think as co-housing, neighborhoods are all over. So some are very urban in the heart of town. Speaking of Portland, we I worked on a project that's just finishing completion down there. And it's, you know, it's 27 units, four stories, and half an acre, you know, right, you know, you can walk to everything, the brew pubs around the corner of the yoga studios, you know, two doors down sort of thing. So that was really a draw for that community, was, you know, being in a walkable neighborhood. And then there are other communities that are out on the land. But I think one of the interesting things is that the nature of the collaboration and knowing each other and working together is irrelevant of the location. You will drive less. And so they did an interesting traffic count study in one of the early communities that is located outside of Denver. And uh, particularly when it was first built, it was kind of out you know there's no bus lines out there you really can't walk to anything um, and so but just compared that uh, that particular co-housing neighborhood to the adjacent suburban neighborhood and they dropped their traffic trips down by you know I think over half of what the adjacent neighborhood was that's
1: amazing
3: so even irrelevant of the location mm-hmm. you know you just. And you know, it really makes sense. As a culture, we you know we just drive for everything now. So you know, you're, you don't have an onion, you drive to the store to pick it up. You know, you drive your kids to their play dates. I mean, which is, I think is one of the most insane things about right. modern parenting. Um, so
1: co housing, it's all right there. You can you know your neighbor, so you can borrow an onion. Yes, exactly. <laughs> regularly, I actually have
3: a a great story on that. My uh, daughter, who's now twenty five, but grew up here, she and her friend decided uh, it was when there was a big fire and there were all the firefighters were staying in the fairgrounds and they decided they were going to make chocolate chip cookies for the firefighters, except that neither of their households had any of the ingredients. It's <laughs> not that we didn't have something. We had none of the ingredients between two households. But that did not stop them being co-housing kids. They just went door to door. Until they got all the ingredients, they made you know two batches, big batches of chocolate cookies. They delivered cookies to everybody who contributed, <laughs> <laughs> and took the rest to the firefighters.
1: Very good. Yeah, that's just one small example, like you said, of what the possibilities in this. And like you yes. said, how it might have used to have been more so, and we've kind of moved away from that with a and being more exclusionary.
3: Yes, and in so many ways, you know, I mean, it started as, as people got. Cars became accessible, so every household had a car. Uh, One of the great things that really changed the American neighborhood life is the advent of air conditioning. You know, it used to be you sat on your front porch and you talked to the neighbors when they walked by because you were just trying to cool off, you know, at the end of a hot day. And now everybody's inside and it's all closed down and you just hear the condensers rolling. Mm -hmm. So... That actually discourages the next-door neighbor sitting on the front porch because they just hear your condenser. So these uh, little things that really affect how people live in a neighborhood.
0: Well, one thing that I've thought of that I wonder how how much it affects how, how much we interact as neighbors is just that the... Uh, work home life is completely different than, I mean, it's a long time ago, but like 150 years ago, you lived where you worked. You know, if you were a shoemaker, you, I don't know, you lived in the back and you had your store in the front or something like that. And now even as co-housers, we all do our different things. I mean, those of us who are still working, we all do our different things during the day, which is all right. You know, we have that connection with our workmates too, but I kind of see that as a challenge to overcome of modern
3: American life. Yes, but actually I think it's scarier what's moving forward. So we have an ever-increasing portion of the workforce that uh, works at home, digitally.
0: Like
3: me. And a huge number of those people live alone. Mm. So they they are not going off to work, Mm -hmm. and they are alone in front of a computer all day and all night. Mm -hmm. And that is even scarier, because I think isolation really builds on itself. Um, And so that, you know, so I think one of the things we find with co-housing neighborhoods is um, about a third of co-housers work part or full time at home. And so, you know, when it is great, you don't have to commute, you know, you can be around for the kid coming home. I mean, there's a lot of benefits to working out of the house or close by. And, um, but again but it, but that means it's even more important to bring the social life back into the neighborhood mm-hmm. so that you don't end up you know isolated it's in your balance. apartment with a all day on your computer for both your social and your work life.
0: Well, I've always I've been surprised that more maybe it's different in other co-housing communities, but I've been
3: surprised that more single young people don't live in co-housing. Yes. That is an interesting thing. I mean, one of the things is you know as things have evolved over time um, people singles young people tend not to buy houses you know i think over time we get married later we buy houses later so often people in their 20s are they're traveling they're going to school they're they're not ready to put down roots somewhere Um, And so, in fact, I was just thinking, you know, here it is in August and my 25-year-old daughter will be coming home and her boyfriend and my nieces. So they're kind of passing through, but they're not settled anywhere. And so I don't, so I think in terms of that, they're not buying into co-housing, but they are often passing through (laughs) with family and other than that. But I do think, I think, you know, we have a a growing movement of micro-houses and shared housing and co-living, um, you know building on you know it's not like that's new you know um, I lived for a decade in my 20s in shared houses and I think that's a place where you you know you kind of when you live in a great shared house it's really fun it's when you're young because you you know make big dinners have big parties and, and so I think then it's like okay now as I'm you know now I have a kid or I have a partner or I I'm, I need to focus more on work and ever how do I continue some of the pluses of that in a different way as we get older and tend to go through a phase of life where we're a little more settled and family-focused. or you know focused. So so I, I see that as sort of a, a natural evolution.
0: Well, I thought we could broaden the discussion to talk about community in general and what that means for our democracy because you um, started to touch on it with talking about how people who work from home are in front of their computer all day and then... Maybe they're in front of their TV all night, um, and I feel like that's—I mean—community is really great for an individual, but I think it's also really important for society because if you don't get out and you don't know your neighbors, you don't know people who think differently than you, mm-hmm. um, and you don't—you don't care about people who are different than you, then it's gonna lead you off the rails really quickly, and you know, to do crazy things like. Vote for Donald
3: Trump. <laughs> well, I do think, I think um, isolation builds fear. I mean, if you are not out interacting with people and you are watching the news, yeah. that, I mean, any normal person would end up paranoid. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is just sort of a, you know, it's not an unusual thing. It's just any of us. So I think, I do think isolation is, we, we tend to get very, the more we are isolated, the more set in our ways we get and the more fearful we get. Um, so that's one thing that I think is huge. Um, I know living in community, you know, just reinforces my belief in people and that people can work together and that we can find compromise, and that I do learn peop- things from other people, and I, I actually end up you know developing my intellect and my ideas because of that interaction. So so for me, certainly living in community really reinforces uh, my belief in humankind and that we can do good things. But there's all these other levels as well. You know, I've been involved in co-housing development from the 1980s, and over that same period of time, they've now done a huge number of studies, which really show very significantly how the, your social network and your social connection, your social capital, as they say, is directly related to your health and your longevity. And that that has so many pluses when you have a strong social network. So just in terms of literally your physical health and how long you will live is directly correlated. But also things like how um, if you are have a stronger social network, you know, and I you really see this just in this community here, you're more likely to be involved in civic organizations, to volunteer at the schools, to vote to turn out to you know volunteer for nonprofits and you know see that here in this community because somebody will say oh i'm going to go see this film about such and such or does anybody want to go do that and so you're talking about what's going on out there in the larger world and and tend to get more connected with that through our social networks so i think well so i think on, you know all these different levels on a very personal healthcare level how do we how do we spend less on healthcare Community connection is huge. And then, you know, how do we keep people more involved in our democracy and participating, you know, whether it's helping out with the homeless shelter or working on a I'm, I'm board member of the land trust, you know. I think that same social network really encourages that. So there's, yeah, so I think it really makes a huge difference over the long term. And then, you know, like here, I, I wouldn't say we're the broadest, uh, number of political views. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely, community seems to attract people in the more progressive end. Um, though I don't know that that's necessary. I'm not convinced. You know, I don't. I, I think I think community is really one of the most basic things about being human. Well, um,
1: don't maybe other folks tend to go to churches or what? Right. Yeah, church right?
3: Right. So, right. yeah, you find your community somewhere, right? So yeah, exactly. Um, but there's a place, you know, there's an ongoing conversation, right? So when we get together for dinner and we're talking about local politics, national politics, you know, the world issues, so that you just have more sources feeding into your head, your, you know, understanding of the world.
1: Does that similarity between kind of a political similarity help when... It- if conflicts do arise, because it is a close community and conflict is going to arise, how how do you handle that maybe differently than folks in a more mainstream?
3: Well, I think um, the, the bottom line thing that really changes the nature of conflict anywhere is relationship. Mm-hmm. And so um, just when you think about it on a congressional level, one of the huge impacts of the way our Congress works in Washington is it used to be that Congress people moved to Washington they moved their kids and they moved their families now one could argue that that disconnected them from their local roots but what it actually did is then their kids were going to school with the kids the republican across the way their wives were getting together they were getting together for barbecues and it's those relationships that break down the barriers so i think the number one thing that works in in our community and in, in communities in healthy communities of any sort is I can have really strong opinions, but I care about Stu. I care about his kid. I know him. I respect his opinion. And so I'm much more open to hearing his thoughts on it than someone that is, you know, just some stranger I don't really respect or know. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really building those relationships that open up the opportunity to hear and understand each other. And then really, I think one of the things we do um, living in communities, we actually study process in the sense of really practicing how do you listen how do i really understand what's driving you and take a little more time to do that so it's not like we have some fancy conflict resolution (laughs) process (laughs) but we are willing to uh, start with the assumption of best intent Mm -hmm. that even if i don't understand why you did it that way and why you hacked at that bush like that (laughs) That if I just first of all stop and say, I don't know why she did it that way. But I think she thought she was helping. <laughs> so let's start from that place, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, you stupid now, right? Right. So and then and then just creating the space for conversation and understanding and being willing to like let me hear, you know, what you're thinking.
1: Is there a vetting process where no. folks that come into the community, you make sure they're coming? With this idea of coming from positive intent versus
3: No, it's a learning process. We really and I think this is a really important part of, of co-housing communities. We don't select you, you select us. Our job here as a community, if you're considering, you know, moving in or buying in, is to make sure you understand the expectations. You know, that you don't get community without participating. So we you know, we want you to be part of the meal cooking team, we want you to show up at work days, we want you to come to meetings, whether you're renting or buying. Because if you and so I think that's really it's a self-selecting process, and I am a big believer in that because having lived in uh, you know several co-housing communities over the last several decades, I don't know that I could select who would be. I mean, they would end up like me. That's terrible. That'd be really boring. And I think, I think what we're we're trying to do is not to be a bunch of people just like me. Mm-hmm. We're trying to. You know, and it's not to say that we push the limits in any direction, but I, we I mean, my goal with co-housing commun- neighborhoods is that it is to broaden the number of people who can participate, and to—and that we could have brought you know to the extent that we can, so that we do hear and get to know each other. I don't want it to be a small and narrow group of people. So that's different ages, it's different backgrounds, it's different—you know—political be- beliefs, so that we can create a place for conversation. So really, the only shared value you need to have to move into a community is believing that together we can do more than I can do alone. And therefore, it is worth my time and effort to work with my neighbors, because in the bottom line, very selfishly, I'm going to get a better life out of it. So, um, and probably the world too, but really, we work from really all of us, you know, we work from our own selfish need, Right. I get a better life because I take the time and work with my neighbors and show up at workdays. And so, so yeah, so I think, I think that's an important aspect of a self-selecting and not, you know, that we don't vet people. We do try to talk to them and make sure they, you know, have an understanding.
1: Of the expectations, mm-hmm. like you said.
3: Right. Nobody's doing it for you. So, you know, I was just out there this morning working in the landscaping with a bunch of us and we don't have a hired landscaper who's going to come and tend all the flower beds.
1: And it's beautiful out there. So <laughs> yeah, I the no,
3: exactly. Works. So it's like nobody's going to take care of it for us. Mm-hmm. And in that way, it's interesting because we're, we're legally condominiums and we're attached townhouses. But I think we have actually a much more single-family house mindset in that we don't want to hire that out. So just like, you know, if you... Well, I guess now more and more people hire out their yard the work, so we won't go there. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think, anyway, I think that's you know, and I think it's a learning process. it, it is not as if um, growing up in America trains you to work collaboratively. So it's for all of us. It's a learning process, and we all have our ups and downs with it. And we all, you know, there there are times when I've just said I just shouldn't read the email, the community email. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, you know, and, and I think one of the things we're really trying to create with co housing neighborhoods is a, uh, you know, systems that allow you to plug in and our, all of our lives have ups and downs. We all have periods of time where I just can't put as much in the community, whether it's work or family or illness. And to acknowledge that, you know, that we're going to, people are going to live here over the long term, mm-hmm. we need, we're accommodating people's ups and downs. And, uh, as they go through the lives, and that works out.
1: Right, and that's the whole point, is that there's somebody there to pick up the slack when you're not able to do it, versus that isolation that you mentioned, that there's nobody there. There's no safety net.
3: Yes. Yeah, and actually, that's another um, interesting, going back to, to the different how it contributes um, to the larger uh, society. There's also some, been some very interesting studies about resilience, and what makes a neighborhood resilient. And there are a number of places um, where they went back in. There was a major heat wave in Chicago, and there was also a major heat wave in France, where literally, like in France, like 13,000 people died. I mean, it was a huge number. It was just crazy. And then when the um, academics went in and studied, what made the difference where people died in one neighborhood and didn't die in the adjacent neighborhood? it was it literally came down to social networks the people who died were typically elderly people who were isolated and nobody checked in on them mm-hmm. nobody said let's get some water on you let's make sure you're drinking let's you know and so and when you talk about resilience again it really goes back to that social network
0: yeah i see that as well i mean we've got our stash of water and our canister of emergency food but i see that as secondary to Living in co housing, if there's a disaster, we're all gonna, you know, out of 34 households, we're gonna be able to take care of each other.
3: Yeah, no, there's a, another thing they talk about in urban planning. Um, so, when they, the way the Spanish laid out towns, there was always around, there we go. So, the way the Spanish laid, laid out town, you know, from the colonial days, it was, you know, is you put a square and a church in the center and then you laid out the neighborhoods around that, right? So if there was ever a disaster of any sort, it was always totally obvious where you went. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how many American neighborhoods, if there was, you know, whether, you know, whatever sort of disaster you could dream up, do you know where you would go, right? Whereas it's totally obvious. We'd go to the common house to yeah. <laughs> figure out what we need to do. <laughs>
0: well, when our heat goes out, we all hang out in the common house. <laughs> we have heat that works in the common house when the houses don't. Still- um, well, one thing I wanted to touch on is I think of co-housing as um, you know, it. we don't easily find this kind of community in the greater society, whereas we may have in the past, so it kind of seems like a well, if it's not out there, we're going to do it ourselves. Um, but I see that that loss of community in American society having <clears throat> happened very intentionally I guess around the 50s, right, when there was the whole Red Scare and Anything that was for common use was seen as communism, right? Like public parks and public transportation and all that kind of stuff. And it just kind of transitioned into the single family house kind of living. But do you see any modern development patterns changing to incorporate more common goods um, and more community in the greater
3: society? Mm, Yes and no. Um, there has been a renaissance in urban planning and so there are there's a lot more sort of energy money going into cities and I think the whole walkable city movement walkable neighborhoods I mean that just really getting people out of their cars makes um, opens up so many opportunities so Certainly in many cities and towns across America, there's a re-emphasis on the walkable neighborhoods, the older neighborhoods, and in in a few building new neighborhoods that are more walkable uh, based on 1920s planning principles when not everybody had a car. The overwhelming amount of new residential development is still suburban development. Um, A a lot of it is because... uh, of neighborhood opposition to changing neighborhoods and building higher densities in existing neighborhoods, and so if you're a developer, the na- you know every if you are a developer, all the incentives push you to do spread out suburban development. It's easier to finance. There's less liability. Uh, the market expects it and shows up for you. And the further out you go, the less neighborhood opposition you have. So. We, you know, the incentives that drive it, which are not coordinated, it's not like there's some body who said, oh, well, we want to really push this, it just ends up that way. So it's very understandable why developers build why, what they build. That's, what we, that's the way we laid out the game. They're just trying to do the best they can with the rules on the table. So the only way we're going to change it is with the, the consumer demanding it. And I, I personally am pretty tired of people bad-mouthing developers. Mm-hmm. They're just solving a problem. Developers will build whatever sells. It's the consumer that drives it. And consumers have to demand something else. If you want something else, and you've got to be willing to take the financial risk and put your money up for it. Mm-hmm. You know, not just like, why well, whoosh, wish, but I'm not willing to do anything and not willing to take any risk for it. So just what I think is so, um, which is why with the co-housing communities, we didn't go to the development community originally. We said, we've got to prove there's a market. Nobody's going to do this if we can't prove there's a market. So we, from the very beginning, always went to the community. We, who wants to buy in, you know, in, order, in organizing new communities to this day? That's the way communities get built. Um, because you've got to be able to prove there's people willing to pay what it actually costs, to
0: live here, doesn't it come into um, zoning as well, though? I was going to make sure that rarely.
3: Oh, really? Yeah, it's like not really. That's really for
0: mixed-use neighborhoods and things like that.
3: No, I mean you can't. You know, you, you know, you're not going to go into a five-acre lot subdivision and put 24 units on that. But you know, so you'll need to find the appropriate zoning. But that really is not the issue.
1: I was thinking more that having been on the planning commission in grass Valley and seeing that process and having lived in Portland as well. And knowing that Portland intentionally to use Stu's word planned to do this up and not out despite Beaverton and these other places that exist nearby Clackamas. But Mm -hmm. so I guess what I'm saying is I think there is certainly a role for uh, government and general plans to encourage the sorts of things you're talking about or at the very least not discourage the things that you're talking about? Yeah no
3: certainly but I really don't see that as the big hurdle Um, I see I mean the one thing that would make a difference is we uh, in many the large majority of residential zoning is a a number of units per acre Mm -hmm. um, which drives um, developers to build larger units and so if we can, when you get into truly urban areas, this is not a problem because then it's an area ratio, not a number of units, in terms of how they figure the zoning density. But you know, in any single-family house or townhouse neighborhood, is typically a units per acre. And so, like I've looked at plenty of sites where a traditional developer would build thirty large homes, we would like to build. Um, you know, in order to make the economics work and make it more affordable, we'd like to build, you know, 36 right. smaller homes, you know, and have a broader range. Mm-hmm. And the zoning doesn't really allow for that. So it could be, it could actually be less massing, um, but it's still more units. But again, the issue is really not the planning departments, the issue is the neighbors. Mm-hmm. The neighbors are, we are so fearful of change. And the neighbors, they don't care about how big it is. They care about the car trips. And if you have more households, you probably do have more cars than you do. So it's really, I mean, I think both um, as consumers and as neighbors, we really don't appreciate how much power we have.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, did you take a look at the Dorsey project that they're proposing? Did you go to any of the open houses and whatnot in Grass Valley here?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, it didn't, yeah, a little bit, no.
1: It seemed like there was exactly like you're saying a lot of resistance to this idea but even though they were really maybe on a more traditional uh, approach but they were trying to incorporate housing and services and whatnot it just seemed like and and as uh, tom last mentioned to me classic infill <laughs> you know? there's,
3: there's not a thing I mean I, I you know working with co-housing groups all over the country that's one of the things I prep them for right you just assume the neighbors will think that you are going to destroy them right and if you start with that assumption and if it's any better you're're you're doing good <laughs> but yeah no it's a it's a, the fear of change right. and and because the way we our economics work is we um, for most uh, Americans if they own their house, is the largest single financial investment they have, mm-hmm. and the way our whole system works here is—you know—that's what you retire on, that's what you send your kids to college on, that's your security. So anything rational or not—and I would argue it is often irrational—that um, in any way threatens that, it threatens my financial security. Right. So it's—we tie a lot into home ownership mm-hmm. that way. So
1: because the the other you're not going to get your schooling paid for. So should we address those other issues, there wouldn't be so much pressure on the home ownership piece of it.
3: Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You wouldn't be, you know, you know, And so now we're now in a society where people buy a house more concerned about its resale value than the quality of life they're going to have there while they're living there as a neighbor. And that's, you know, that's very new. That was not true in the fifties. In the fifties, you know, you didn't expect to make a lot of money on your house you yeah. were looking at, you know, where do I want to raise my kids? and I've always found that to be silly because
0: if you're just going to live there the rest of your life, you're not going to sell it, and so it doesn't matter what it's <laughs> going to sell for.
3: No, and that but that is so much part of the American psychic now is just what's the resale value. You know, people read real estate magazines, and they, you know, so you should buy the smallest house in the best neighborhood so that you can write. You know, I mean, there's, you know, they, they don't think people... Um, you know, how many people do you know when they buy into a new neighborhood an existing neighborhood? Do they go talk to the neighbors? No, mm-hmm. not usually. <laughs> you know, that's, I met a woman once who said, "Yeah, well, I just go next door and I kind of knock on a few doors and talk to people." And I was like, "Wow, that is really unusual."
1: <laughs> we knew we had a great neighborhood when we moved to Grass Valley because a neighbor brought us cookies. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well,
0: so. Mm-hmm. Katie, thanks for coming on the program. Was there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap it up?
3: Let's see, I'm trying to think there were some things that were in your questions.
1: Oh, right. That I,
3: was... I mean, we
0: can keep going if you want, but uh, we're at 36 your... minutes, so we can right. end it now if you want.
1: Housing patterns, um, surrounding community, oh, benefits to the surrounding community. That's a good question.
3: Yeah, I think we covered that, that under the social... Yeah, you right. What
1: kind of dialogue... Oh, uh-huh. um, you kind of did talk about challenges to uh, the co-housing movement, too, when you talked about people's resistance to change. Yeah,
3: Denmark. Yeah, maybe that would be the sort of one last thing, is to say, I think, you know, what, what are the barriers to co-housing? I mean, it's, you know, housing development in the United States right now is really challenged. Um, you know, we're seeing, as we have greater income inequality across the board. You're seeing that in home ownership as well, right? And so, you know, as we've talked about, all the incentives are for developers to build larger single-family homes. That is the system we have set up as a society. It is not something the developers did. We as a society did that. And so it's very understandable why developers build that, because that's what they can get financed, and that's where people will buy, and at the higher end is where people still have money to buy. So... That so you know so with when we do co-housing neighborhood development we're dealing with all those same issues and we don't have any magic silver bullet that solves there's not some special financing for co-housing and there's we don't get any breaks from planning departments or banks or mortgages and why
1: not that's kind of what I'm you know back to that government piece we could be advocating for those things we're doing something different that benefits this you've got the studies backing it all up. Yes, Ch- you know we need to. We change could
3: definitely that. could. We could definitely redesign. You know, there's a really interesting movement going on in Germany right now called Baugruppen, and it's a very simple financing mechanism that basically says, if you get a group of people organized who can, you know, have certain meet certain financial requirements, there's a financing pocket for you, and that would be perfect for co-housing. So it's like, you know, there's certain criteria, but if you get a group of home buyers together. And hire an architect and do this. There's financing lined up, as opposed to having to go out and hunt it in the private banks that are suspicious about anything different. <laughs> so, so yeah, we could definitely. Um, I don't see that happening soon, but we could definitely, you know, look at all the different things and how it impacts, and you know, and and particularly focusing on financing, how to get projects financed.
1: So, how do
3: we fire up people about cohousing? Right. So, but I, but. Given that that's the long hard road, the thing that I that we as individuals can control is, you know, people can look for community in their alone lives. Whether they're living in an existing neighborhood and reaching out to do a monthly potluck dinner, or looking at actually, yeah, I, I don't need to worry about the resale value. I want to buy into a co housing, and I'm willing to pay more for a smaller house because of the community and it has value to me, and I'm willing to put my money up to do that. And, as, and, and people joining developing communities. These communities only happen because people are, the buyers group, the people who want to live in it, are willing to come together and put their money together and take risk to play in the development world to create a different kind of neighborhood. And if you're not willing to sort of put your money behind your values, I think we're just talking. So I think really grabbing, you know, what can I do as a housing consumer in this world. How can I connect to my neighbors? How can I reach out? You know, I think as each of us takes those steps, we can change it. And if we're looking to government to change, you know, the regulations in every zoning department across America, that was a long haul. Mm -hmm. But we as individuals have real power in this, and we can take those power, but we've got to get away from our fear. We have to be willing to take risk, and we have to believe that we can work together and do something better. And it's um, as someone who's out there marketing co-housing all the time, I have to say I am shocked at how hard it is to get people. Mm. You know, it's like, well, when I have my little single-family house, I have complete control of it <laughs> and all the problems. But right. I, saw, you know, I don't. Care. <laughs> and <it's, laughs> so I think really looking at ourselves and the power we can take is a, is where I, I think change will happen. And that is there are now 165 co-housing communities across America. And it only happened. It didn't happen because of developers. It didn't happen because of government policy. It happened because groups of people came together and said, and they didn't know each other. It wasn't like they were a group of friends. It's like, you know, I can tell you in project after project, it was one or two people who started putting out flyers and said, I want to create a different kind of neighborhood. Here's this book. Let's see if we can do this. And we're willing to put their money down and take risk to see if they could get a different kind of neighborhood built. So I really want to push people. It's like, don't don't look to government to, to change this. Mm-hmm. Yes, that would be fabulous. <laughs> but that's not gonna happen anytime that's probably
1: soon. Probably secondary to the what you're talking about. Right.
3: Actually getting the people so, involved. Right. I think we really need to take our power as consumers. And mm-hmm. and that does, that has a huge impact. If developers felt like they could sell co-housing. They'd build a lot of co-housing. If they felt like that was where the market is, that's what they'd build. So.
1: Well, thanks, Katie. Okay, good. You, Katie. That was very inspiring.
0: <laughs> thanks for joining us for our first full-length episode of Resistance U.S. Radio. Special thanks go out to Keith Carey for our intro music. Please reach out to us with any comments or show ideas by emailing radio at resistance.us.org